History happened everywhere. The verdict. This is our after show podcast where we look back at the most recent episode, Mountain in Ireland during the Age of Imperialism. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check it out, or else you will encounter spoilers ahead. I say, I say, Can we start the podcast? If you insist. Hello, I'm Pete Goddard. I'm here in the History Happened Everywhere studio with my friend, colleague and co-host, Mr. Ryan Weir. Hello, everyone. And of course, down the line, the delightful, the degenerate, the depraved, Mr. Paul Dursley. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Did you consider that a compliment? More more than the usual. I'm just wondering what generous is to be degenerate. In mathematical terms, degenerate is when two things are the same. Right. Well, then I was completely wrong because there is only one Paul Dursley. <laughs> oh, no, that's true. <laughs> so, uh, one of my alternative Paul Dursley intros was going to be the death-defying Paul Dursley. Ooh. Um, and I wondered, Paul, if you have ever defied death. Well, all the time, just like you and Ryan. <laughs> just on an ongoing basis, you are <laughs> defying death. Well, is, is, isn't life defying it's death? Not, yeah, I get. I guess. I guess. <laughs> I, I, th- I think normally defying death is implies a sort of brush up against death itself, rather than just simply cracking on with your life in a healthy manner. Right, clambering over your rooftop uh, and a tile slipping out from under your foot. Oh yeah. I was once on a plane that I thought was a bit dodgy. You could see people were sort of thinking, "Is something not quite right here?" And they're sort of we're sort of all looking at each other, but nobody said anything. And, and there was liquid coming out of the engine as well because I was sitting near the engine. Yeah, that's probably it then. That does <laughs> that sound like the, the specific thing. thing you probably could have put your finger on earlier in that description of yeah. people were looking at each other, but also liquid was coming out of the engine, which for me would be the thing that I'd be more worried about. Putting your finger on it throughout the entire flight, though, that's just going like to ruffle your hair. Dam. You've, got, <laughs> you've got an arm sticking out of the window, plugging the gap in the engine. <laughs> Uh, but I have a little tradition when I get on a plane, uh, just to prevent any disaster, and that is just to touch the outside of the plane as I walk in through the door. So what happens if you can't do it? Oh, then I feel very uncomfortable. I feel I sit down in, in my chair and I start screaming. <laughs> now, how do you touch the outside? Oh, do you mean like through the door? What if you get one of those little tunnels? You can't touch the plane, That's the tunnel. You? Yeah, just like the door. It's like, it's oh. just to the right of the door. I just put my hand on it as I as if I'm helping myself through, because I don't want anyone to know that I'm being weird. Stupidly. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first time I flew domestic in the States was in the early 90s and uh, and sort of all the stewardesses were about 90 years old. Mm. <laughs> well, before we unlock Ryan. something unexpected and, and uh, horrifying in Ryan, I think we should move on to the main event here, which is why we're here, yeah. which is to talk about last episode. But I'm afraid I can't remember what happened last episode, Ryan. So yeah. if you could in some way remind us, ideally in a period of 60 seconds or less, that would yeah. be terrific. I can totally do that. When do you want me to do it? Uh, right about, I would say, now. 
In this week's episode, we shared a glass of Guinness or two, while I unravelled the history of the Irish, from the earliest inhabitants to those who suffered at the hands of the British through to the country's independence as a republic. We explored the origins of the Age of Imperialism, a period of time where empire-hungry Europeans stopped trading with cultures around the world and instead leveraged their advanced scientific and technological know-how to exploit, enslave and colonise those less able to defend themselves. Then we got down to business, looking at what constitutes a mountain and if there were even any in Ireland. It turns out there are lots of low-lying mountains around the coast, the largest being Carrunter Hill in the southwest of the island, and a number of others, each with their own inventive, descriptive, and occasionally eyebrow-raising names. I then turned focus on the mountaineers themselves, and especially those who became a pioneering group of Irish climbers who summited many of the more dangerous peaks in the Alps during the 19th century, but never really got the plaudits they deserved, one of which was Charles Barrington, an Irishman in his 20s who, with no experience and very little equipment, took on the challenge of conquering the monstrous Iger Mountain succeeded and then immediately retired from climbing. And I finished with an overview of one of my new heroes, an adventurer, explorer, photographer and mountain climber, Lizzie LeBlanc, one of the most infamous mountain climbers of the age. I revealed her incredible achievements in the face of a challenging environment, by which I mean not just the mountains, but those in Victorian society who felt it necessary to ridicule her extraordinary efforts, calling her disgraceful and unbecoming. week's episode done summarized nicely nice one son now we're over to a young dursley who's gonna tell you what he thought of me he'll take you apart without any care he's the lovely paul dursley the lovely paul dursley Yeah, that was it. Oh, it's all coming back to me now. Yeah, lovely Lizzie LeBlonde. So, Mr. Dursley. Yes. How did you feel about Matters Irish and the Mountainous News? It was an interesting episode. Oh, Ooh, that's positive. So you learnt to love Ireland and mountains, did you? Uh, I've always liked Ireland. Well, I've quite liked mountains, as long as I'm looking down on them from an aeroplane with a gin and tonic <laughs> in my hand. Not actually climbing them. By and large, we've come up this against this before. You like a lot of things looking down on them from an aeroplane with a gin and tonic <laughs> in your hand. But uh, overall, did you did you find the episode a fascinating and uh, educational experience? Uh, the mountaineering bit was educational. Some of the others had a, a how should one say? I had a slant. <laughs> a slant. Ooh, that sounds like a yeah. bad thing. So uh, where do you think we, we or specifically Ryan, because I'm entirely blameless in all this, uh, where, did, where did we go wrong, do you think? Uh, the, the typical modern thing of, you know, modern society sort of not understanding the different mores of different ages uh, because we would certainly not stand up and criticise other societies in the world if they have what we might consider rather draconian laws for certain things. Whereas, you know, we we seem to be fair game for everything. So I think you're probably referring here to a... I think Ryan and I are both reasonably robust on colonialism having been a, overall a negative thing. Uh, is that largely what you're getting at here? Uh, yes, I, I'm i quite neutral on the thing. And, uh, and, you know, I'm happy to say so. Whether you wish to brand me a fascist or whatever. I don't think that's a fascist issue. That's more of a... It's a difficult topic for everybody. I mean, Ryan and I, certainly in, matter, in matters 
to do with how the relationship of the UK and Ireland in particular, you know, we, if you can acknowledge there is a we, have done a load of terrible things. And I just don't think you can get away from that in the same way as we have done good things in the past. And I mean, individually, personally, I don't feel I won World War II or massacred Irish in my past. So I don't get any personal gain or loss from any of them. But if there is such a thing as a group of people with a shared identity, then they also have a shared history. And that history you have to, I think, look at, as to, to use a Cromwellian phrase, warts and all. Yes, uh, but there are other ways of looking at things. It's tricky with doing the introduction to the history of a country when you're covering so much ground. I, what I struggled with with doing this one was what do I include? Well, an overabundance of history in a way, wasn't it? There's like you're doing nothing justice because you're skirting over the top of all of it, aren't you? Well, the first, the you know, the first two things that that came off the randomizer were perfect, uh, a perfect confluence of the two. Mm. But then, of course, you threw in mountain into the issue. Mm. But there was a note; uh, it was mountain in the singular, and you talked about a number of mountains. <laughs> so. Just keep it in mind. No, yeah, no, that's fair. I, I, I did think that that might prove a problem. My original plan was just to talk about mountains in Ireland because I was stunned to find that they actually had some. <laughs> um, I think we were all surprised and pleased by that, weren't we? Yeah, yeah. And then just as I was discovering more and more about this secret group of Irish people that had almost single-handedly conquered the Alps during this period. Uh, yes and no. Okay, go on. Well... They were nationally Irish, yes, but they were British. Let's <laughs> mm. <laughs> get a drink. <laughs> Are you going to sack me after this? So they may have been Irish by birth, mm. but at the time, at the end of the 19th century, technically, for you know whatever one might think of this, they were British. That's actually a very good point, because in the episode, I made a joke about Charles Barrington sounding mm. about as un-Irish as you possibly could. And actually, there's, there's some truth to that, isn't there? So not only was he British in the sense of that that was part of Britain at that time, but also very likely he was a transplanted Britain anyway because of the what had happened in the country and yeah. it's, it's it's a reflection of its time for yeah sure. we, pro we probably need to need to check that but i, I would guess he would be what's called anglo-irish and it's it's it hits in on something that's always a problem on history happened everywhere which is we roll countries based on the countries as they are today mm -hmm. but of course they mm. were, have, were constituted differently or a different nation they were technically different countries in their past it begs the question how do you as an irish person in the case of this mountain climber or for any other country that was constituted differently prior to that mm -hmm. who who do you associate with do you say this person was british because it was britain at that time or do you say well it was on the land that is now considered ireland so i consider him irish yeah it's it's you know especially speaking as an englishman you know about you know the um, interesting relationship between england and ireland as you alluded to in your episode mm -hmm. over over time and more recently up until well a relatively relatively few years ago it, it's sort of quite difficult but i was just saying you know when you were talking about you know raising the flag on the thing well i don't know he may have been an irish nationalist so maybe he did raise the tricolor that they 
recoloured in. Mm-hmm. My recollection is he had to borrow a flag from the hotel, which kind of renders all... Might likely <laughs> have been Swiss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yes. that's my feeling. <laughs> so it's, it's a question, isn't it? Who gets to be proud? And I guess everyone gets to be proud because, as our mountain climber friend said, the mountain doesn't care what country you came yeah. from. It's an individual achievement in many ways. Like As we were talking earlier about sort of inherited, if you like, shame or glory, none of it really applies. None, none of us went up that mountain. Mm. He went up the mountain. I couldn't have made it up the mountain, I'm telling you now. <laughs> <laughs> I've spent some time looking at the Eiger uh, since the podcast and, well, and during the research, and it is a terrifying hunk of rock. It really is. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I do recommend just going on YouTube, having a quick little look. It's pretty scary. I, I did note, though, and Pete, this, this might be for us, whilst there is not a single chance you and I of summiting the Eiger Correct. anytime soon, <laughs> let alone Judge Dursley. Is there, sorry, 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 sorry. Is that a verb, to summit? In this instance, yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, what, what, should I, what should I have said? Yeah, to climb, to... <laughs> Tick off. As opposed to Pete is up to summit. Hey! <laughs> so, point being... We're not going to do it. We're, we're unlikely to get to the top. I'd go beyond unlikely, but yeah, that's a generous yeah. interpretation. Well, if you're, if you're unlikely, my chance is imaginary. But how about this, guys? We can get in a train and we can go 3,000 metres up the Eiger in the train. Or not up it, inside it. With a gin and tonic or without? (laughs) We can bring our own gin and tonic if they haven't got any. But there is a railway tunnel that runs inside the mountain. And it's got two internal stations in there. The Eigewand, which is behind the north face, and the Eismir, which is behind the south face. The Eigewand has viewing windows carved into the rock face. So you can get out the station and have a little look and see what it would be like if you were... God, you could play the Bond villain, You could. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 3,000 thousand meters up it's uh, considered the highest railway stations in europe that is good stuff now i also was looking at uh, whether or not you and i could get up the the slope i was watching a video of a man we can't jogging up and i concluded like yourself <laughs> that ain't happening <laughs> that's a fact but yeah. uh so our chap said he was took him about 22 hours 24 hours did he say that it took him to get up there? yeah or no the michael crawley michael crawley yeah yes so i was looking at how long it and he said it's normally 13 hours but it took him a long a long time in inverted yeah. commas so then i thought how quick can you do it okay so i looked into that and uh oh nice in two, 2015 a swiss climber a guy called uli steck got the speed record for the north face of the eiger right two hours 22 minutes 50 seconds <laughs> and there's videos of him he did he's beat the old record by about five minutes right and there's a video of him he's basically just jogging up the mountain in crampons and wow. uh, occasionally he has to do a bit of climbing but uh two two and a two half hours, hours. That's can i just ask does uli steck have a identical twin uh, not because i figured <laughs> that he could just like hide one at the top oh and, pop, and be like uh, right i'm going up now yeah, guys maybe, maybe but he only beat the record by five seconds so he might have he could only have been beating another identical twin but there's i think there's i'm beginning to suspect there's something about climbing that engenders an expansiveness of mind because he said climbing is not a competition and then he says being six minutes faster than the last guy it's nothing it's not what he's interested in and it wasn't like yay i did it it was it was just something to do these guys seem to be all about not i won or i'm against the other people right as as with uh our guy it's so a generous of spirit because i guess you could die doing it and everyone who's there is kind of trying to do the same thing yeah 
didn't seem to be, and I don't know whether it's something about climbing, because this got me thinking about a quote I'd heard about another climber, a guy called Alex Lowe, who was widely considered, as I understand it, to be one of the best climbers in the world. And he, his quote, which is one of my favourite quotes, was, the best climber is the one having the most fun. Oh, wow. This guy was like incredibly, generally considered absolutely the best. His nicknames, you ready for his nicknames? Mm-hmm. Lungs with legs. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and the mutant, because he was just Oy. ridiculously better than everybody else. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, and when asked who's the best, he said the best one's the one having the most fun. I mean, not interested could... in yeah. league tables or anything like that. Clinging on the side of a mountain and fun do not equate <laughs> to... Well, yeah, no, me either. This guy was apparently absolutely uh, a beast and he, yeah. he hated downtime in airports and things. He'd just do 400 pull-ups whilst waiting for planes and stuff. Okay. So... Yeah. Uh, mm, pity he didn't do something useful with his life. Well, he, he ran up and down some mountains. That's yeah. uh, what constitutes use, useful, I would ask. Talking of climbing mountains, I discovered that there is a group in Ireland called the Irish Seven Summits. And this is today, not the period that we've been looking at. But the Irish Seven Summits project has a goal to climb the highest peaks on all seven continents. Amateur mountaineers climb this and they use it as a challenge not to say that they've climbed those seven mountains, but as a way to expand their skills and strengthen their knowledge about climbing. Here are the seven, okay, that they, they're going to do. So number one is Mount Everest. And that's in Nepal, in the Himalayas. Yeah, that, everyone pronounces that incorrectly, as you'd well know. Uh, it was named after, was it a Surveyor General of British India? Okay. But he was known as George Everest. Everest. Yeah. Ah, right. Nice. And so if you're being correct, it should be Mount Everest. But uh, yeah, so that, there's that one, which is 8,848 metres tall. It, interestingly, when it, was, when it was initially measured, it was measured at 29,002 feet. Mm-hmm. And it was actually measured at 29,000 feet exactly. Mm-hmm. But they decided that that would be too much of a coincidence. <laughs> so they added two feet on. I mean, you could if, shove if, a bit of snow on and there you go. There's yeah, an extra yeah, couple yeah. of feet, right? The people who make my shoes also made the first man-made object on the summit of Mount Everest. They made Hillary's uh, climbing shoes. Oh, really? Okay. I feel like that's bringing that sketch to life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the one in the tailor shop. Okay, so here are the seven. So there's uh, Everest. There is Vincent Massif in the Antarctica, which is 4,897 metres. Okay, then there's Denali in Alaska, in North America. Then there's Aconcagua, yeah, in the Andes, Argentina, 6,962 metres. Then there's Elbrus, which is on the border of Georgia in Russia, at 5,642 metres. There's Elbrus and Eberus, interestingly. Mm. And then there's Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, Mm -hmm. Africa, at 5,895 metres. And then there is... Cos, 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 I think you mean Mount. I think you mean Mount Cook or whatever the Maori name for Mount Cook is. Cos, 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 In New South Wales, in Australia, at two thousand two hundred twenty-eight meters tall. That's utter rubbish. Okay, well, I'll let them know. <laughs> the taller, the tallest mountain in Australia is Mount Cook, whatever it's 
No, no, no. Well, it's probably that causes quiz It sounds a lot like that's not in New South Wales, is it? Well, no, but that is in New South Wales, and that's the one that they're if climbing. So those Zealand. are the seven peaks that they are climbing. They have done all of them, barring Everest, and the reason for that is because they stopped after the avalanche that happened in 2014, where 35 people were killed. So they took a few years off, but they are now planning on on completing it within the next few years. Uh, uh, what's considered the most difficult mountain to climb by climbers? I would say K2. Yeah, I know Everest is considered quite straightforward. I think it's the mountain of your own insecurities. <laughs> I think that's absolutely true. And and have you managed to summit yours? No, I'm at base camp, if I'm honest. <laughs> I'm just looking at mine through a telescope. <laughs> Right. I want to talk about John Tyndall. Do so. I want to hear more about John Tyndall. What a guy. So one of the mountaineers that I spoke about from that golden age was John Tyndall, a scientist from Carlo. He was the expert mountaineer who led one of the first teams to reach the top of the Weisshorn in 1861 and the Matterhorn in 1868. Now, Paul, where do we know John Tyndall from? What is he famous for? Yeah. Uh, shining light through liquid. Yeah. First to discover why the sky is blue. It's the same experiment to do it. If you shine a bright light through water, you would you would see a blue haze. And are you able to dis- describe why? It's to, it's to do with the resonant frequency of the nitrogen molecule in the air. Okay, so it's he called it the the Tyndall effect. And it's when sunlight reaches the Earth's atmosphere, it's scattered in all directions by the particles in the air. And due to blue light travelling at shorter waves, it's scattered more than other colours. And that's why we see a blue sky most of the time. That's uh-huh. what he uh, he discovered. He was dubbed the father of climate science because he also discovered, Pete, you know? Yeah. Um, rainbows. <laughs> <laughs> the father of rainbows. Uh, no, the the greenhouse effect. It's the same John Tyndall, isn't same it? Same John Tyndall. Yeah, he he. Wow, I did not. He discovered know that. the greenhouse effect. So you know that idea of a blanket covering the earth. That's what he discovered. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, and so, uh, as with most scientific things and most things that people get uppity about, generally the greenhouse effect is a good mm-hmm. thing. It's the runaway greenhouse effect that's the bad thing. So you'd invite John Tyndall to your party because he knew how to create an atmosphere. Youch. So it's a pity I can't score you on this one. But why don't why don't I, why don't I take a point off Brian and give whoa, it to you? Whoa, 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 No, 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 That's no. It's a little no. harsh. Right. I don't think we can do that. I just want to finish up on John Tyndall, and I want to talk about his wife. This was like a whole section that I was going to talk about, but just didn't didn't have enough time to fit it in. So John Tyndall was at a concert in London. He was 56 years old and he was introduced to 27-year-old Louisa Hamilton, daughter of Lord Claude Hamilton. Lord Claude. Lord Claude <laughs> Hamilton, yeah. <laughs> and she was the woman who, he said, raised my ideal of the possibilities of human nature. How wonderful is that? Well, that's one way of putting it. She certainly raised something. 
<laughs> oh, Lord. This is all going to seem very bad in a minute. So in 1876, they married in Westminster Abbey and Louisa became his secretary, which was lovely, helping him write up his laboratory notes and all the books that he had. He had 17 books that he published in the end. And the couple spent their summers together in Switzerland, where Tyndall studied the glaciers and mountains and she was there helping him out. At their home in Surrey, he had trouble sleeping. Apparently he used to worry about the lectures that he was giving. And so every evening he took chloral uh, for his insomnia and every alternate morning he'd take magnesia for his stomach. And on the morning of 4th of December, 1893, his wife made a bit of a mistake. In her words, I measured a teaspoonful of magnesia, as I thought, and added water. He took a gulp. All he said was, there is a curious sweet taste. I said, John, I've given you chloral. And he was dead by the evening. Stricken with grief and guilt, she devoted the rest of her life to writing his biography. How about that? Uh, interesting. So did it go to court? Not that I'm aware of. Oh, mate, that's brutal. Isn't it awful? Yeah. Now, I mean, yeah, I guess the cynical part of you might be like, she did it on purpose. <laughs> but I don't get that impression from, from what I read. No. Oh, no. Isn't that awful? Terrible. Yeah. What is chloral, by the way? Does anybody know? relative of uh, chloroform maybe all right i'm gonna ask the lady of the internet i would think it's yeah it's something like that go on um lady of the internet uh, would you mind telling us what chloral is hello this is the voice of the internet discovered in 1832 by justice von liebig chloral hydrate is a colorless solid derived from chloral by the addition of one equivalent of water it is limited use as a sedative and hypnotic pharmaceutical drug used for the short-term treatment of insomnia or as a sedative before medical, dental or veterinary treatment. Chloral hydrate has a very narrow therapeutic window which makes the drug difficult to use. It was largely displaced in the mid-20th century by barbiturates and subsequently by benzodiazepines. Higher doses of chloral hydrate can slow respiration and blood pressure to dangerous levels, which is likely what impacted John Tyndall. Thank you. So, someone to talk about mountain climbing. What would be the quote that springs to mind for you, Paul? <sighs> because it's there. Because it's there, exactly. And I suddenly realised uh, this is a very famous quote. That's like, why do you climb mountains? Because it's there. And I knew nothing more than that. So uh, I delved into it a little bit. Uh, and it, this is a quote from a guy called George Mallory. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, George Mallory. Yes. He's an interesting chap. Well, off we go. <laughs> We're off to the races. George Mallory was a mountaineer. He went to Everest in the 20s. And there's a school of thought that thinks he may have summited Everest. Okay. But we don't know. Oh. Um, and uh, there's... But we uh, do know he had a camera. Why is that? Well, you find the body, you find the camera. And they did find the body, but they didn't find the camera. Oh, I see. But obviously, he'd be taking pictures if he was at the top, wouldn't he? And so you'd have proof in the camera whether he made it or not. So this is it. So there's a bit a bit of a, contro not a controversy. There's a bit of a, an interesting scenario where this guy may or may not have made it to the top. So his son, John Mallory, said, to me, the only way you achieve a summit is to come back alive. The job is only half done if you don't get down again. <laughs> that sounds like a mountaineer's oh. answer, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> it really does, doesn't it? So yeah, he, he went up. He may or may not have made it to the top. And uh, there's theories and debate about whether he made it and who was the first to, to get to the top of Everest. There was a fascinating program called Horizon about that. I think it was about five or six years ago where there was a, an international team who went on to Everest and they were looking for him and Irvin, who were the two 
people who were climbing Everest at the time. And they found him and he was mummified, basically. And he was still wearing all of the clothes, you know, joking about the tweeds and all of that. And they found his altimeter. They found a number of overdue bills from suppliers in London. Why would he take that up with him? (laughs) It's just kind of paperwork, I would think, is the last thing I'd take. Yeah, exactly. Well, I I took my bureau to the summit. (laughs) I had some administration that I must have dealt with. (laughs) But I I do urge to look at that story. It's a fascinating story about that. And they found the body and then they sort of, I don't know whether they buried him or whether they put a pile of stones over him, but they left him there. Are you of the opinion that a woman should not be a mountain climber or wear a skirt and climb mountains? Uh... Well, I'm sure there there's better attire to wear than a a floppy skirt. Like a mini skirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think that's a bit dangerous as well. But if you're asking should women climb mountains, of course they should. Right. Excellent. Let's move on. Paul, I believe we have arrived at that most momentous of moments where we consider Ryan's presentation to yourself and you judge us or him. It's nothing to do with me. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. He's the judge, he's the judge. Paul Dursley is the judge. It's time for his judgment, judging all the things we does. Yeah, yeah. All rise for the judge. Question one. On the matter of educational content... How did Ryan do? Ah, C minus. C minus? That feels harsh to me. Ryan, would you care to say anything about the judge's opinion on this matter? I would, actually, yeah. That feels harsh. It may be just we have different... It may be we have different opinions of history. Oh, yes, you got caught up by that. Colonial part, yeah. Okay, second question. On matters entertainment, how did you feel about Ryan's presentations? Now, I'll give that a B, because I think for once you had some very good sketches. Really? Okay, well, that's nice. Well, you see, I, I, I don't mind taking the mickey out of things, and I quite liked your, I quite liked your British Empire sketch. <laughs> Uh, moving on to the evergreen Dursley factor. What engaged you? What didn't engage you? How did you feel as a Dursley? You talked about too many mountains. Oh, because it was mountain, mountain, right? Yeah. We have to take the semantics into account. Okay. However, I think your guest was superb. He was excellent, wasn't he? He really was. Did you like his voice? I've got it on loop. Uh, it helps me get to sleep at night. I, th- I, th- I thought you'd give him the telephone directory. <laughs> <laughs> so what grade are you going to give Michael Crawley then? <laughs> <laughs> That's unfair. <laughs> I know. I think that that is the question put to the judge. Well, I think he was a very good guess. I'll give him a B plus. Okay, so to the main event. This oh, is quite a go. spread there, so I don't know what's going to happen next. No, not so. a white. Paul Rise for the judge. Paul Dursley, how do you find this week's episode from Ryan Reed? 
C+. C+. Would the defendant like to make a statement? Yeah. I was hoping for an A. Hope again. And that's the statement. That was your statement. Okay. <laughs> no, I was hoping for an A because it looks like a mountain. Ooh. Like a capital A, not a small A. Okay, then I'll give you a U because there are U-shaped valleys in the mountains. Um, it's like a glacial valley. <laughs> 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 well, that Gosh, nearly backfired horribly, didn't it? <laughs> He's the judge, he's the judge, Paul Dursley is the judge, it's time for his judgment, judging all the things we does, yeah, yeah. Okay, that is our show for this week. It is. That was an excellent show, Ryan, I enjoyed it. I feel you've been done dirty by the judge, but yeah. nevertheless, thank you for your judgment, your honour. Done dirty by Dursley. My pleasure. Thank you for listening, everyone out there. Uh, do stay with us for next week because I will be talking about the period of free America in New Zealand on the subject of Christmas. It's Christmas. How exciting. So uh, deck the halls, trim the tree, wrap the presents, and uh, probably mull some wine would be my I've done my all of these things in prep. You should be ready, right? Because ready. I have got some Santa facts for you. <gasps> Yay! So they'll be gift wrapped. Yes. And they'll be brought by Elf. <gasps> but that's all next week. So uh, in the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with us about any of the things we've talked about, you can reach out to us on social media or you can come to our website, hhepodcast.com or email us at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show like Brian Kitson, who wrote to us to let us know that it just goes to show that whether one is climbing mountains or podcasting, a helping of enthusiasm and honest endeavour will take you far. Great podcast, entertaining and enlightening. Thanks for shining a light on these two Irish legends. I like that because it absolutely cements my view that we are taking similar risks to these mountain climbers in our choice of hobby. <laughs> yeah. The high altitude podcasting. Very similar. Uh, if you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, you can find us at, at HHE Podcast. If you subscribe to them, you'll get an alert when we do a little one minute video that we like to do a couple of times a week. That's right. And we're going to be back again soon with the next episode. But in the meantime, if you can't get enough of this show, which is totally understandable, you can check out our back catalogue of episodes uh, and you can find those in your podcast app on YouTube or on our website, hhepodcast.com. So, a huge thank you to The Judge All Rise. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Goodbye. And uh, I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... Wait, what's your thoughts on Guinness, Paul? The first pint is lovely. I can never finish the second. Yeah, it's a, it's a pint, it's a drink, it's a meal. A meal in a glass. <laughs> it is a meal, yeah. Yes. It is one of the few really decent breakfast beers, in my view. Well, it's very strong for a breakfast beer because breakfast beers used to be incredibly weak. Yeah, I'm thinking it's your day off. You're going to go to the races, probably. You're going to have a nice big fried breakfast and a pint of Guinness to get you set up for the day. When I worked in a pub, I used to enjoy pouring a pint of Guinness. It would take three times as long as any other drink and really felt like you were crafting something. And you could also do a little squiggly symbol on you the top. You could do a little squiggly white. symbol, pointlessly. What symbol did you used to do if you didn't like the person? <laughs> Yeah, well, we used to ask people what they'd want, and then we'd do little competitions to see what we could draw. Most often it was breast. <laughs> <laughs> or a penis. <laughs> so it's just a W or an N. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. An N. <laughs> a little N. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you wait, Paul. You'll be 
having your role to play in History Happened Everywhere Bar and Grill, which we're planning to open in the near future. <laughs> you I laugh, see. And so what do the dishes... Well, what that's the dishes? trick. You don't see. even know. You get there's rolled a me- randomly. A menu later. <laughs> <laughs> the menulator tells you what you're going to eat, drink, and when you're going to have it. And how much you're going to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> what about how much you're going to pay? <laughs> I don't know everything.